This is episode number nine of the Bearded Marketers. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. And tonight we're going to be talking about exciting your customers. Are you doing it? This is the question. <laughs> and those Bing and Arn challenge commercials. We're going to get to the root of what's actually going on with that because Google is definitely better. Facts. Uh, we're going to transition a little bit to looking at some mobile commerce trends and what is what can we do as marketers to kind of take advantage of it and what are some interesting things that even surprised me. Um, and then kind of wrapping it up, we're going to look at a study that uh, Marketing Sherpa actually put out um, on some of the biggest challenges in marketing uh, analytics because I think that that is a hair puller for a lot of us. So let's we're going to kind of cover that and some solutions potentially that we've had to implement uh, as we've kind of come up with these struggles as well. So, but most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly, but as tradition holds, Rob, what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking a Presbyterian tonight. Ooh, I will, uh, I'll tweet out the recipe. Gotcha. All right. And for those that are wondering, Rob is wearing a robe with his drink to get the full effect of holy drinking. Um, and then I actually already finished my McClellan 12 year scotch tonight. So, Uh-oh. you know, the jokes are going to be flowing if I already finished my drinks. So, <laughs> but let's anyways, let's kind of get into it tonight. So I come across this article, uh, this week. Um, it's actually on a pretty funny, uh, newsletter called damn. I wish I would have thought of that, which actually has some, uh, pretty interesting information every once in a while. And, uh, the kind of issue that they were talking about, uh, which I think that a lot of us could benefit from. I know some of the partners that I work with could, um, but they actually featured a company called Black Milk Clothing, and they are out of New Zealand or Australia, I believe, and they make uh, women's clothing, but specifically they make these outrageous leggings um, to where there are some very interesting patterns, and basically your leggings will yell for themselves <laughs> as you walk into a room. Um, but that really wasn't the point of the article, uh, as funny as they are. Um, the The point of it was that this company, Black Milk, has done a great job at making really fanatical fans of their brands. Um, that they have... You know, not only done the typical fostering of a community, you know, like Facebook tips and, you know, the the generic things that we've all heard in webinars and, you know, going to meetups and listening to all the same webinars that we all have. Um, But they've actually taken the time to actually hold community events um, and they actually coined a term for their fans. They call them sharkies and they actually have, what's, what's the relevance of the term sharky? I, I, I have no idea. Um, are we going to sound like idiots now? Cause it's obvious and we're not getting it. Well, I don't feel like an idiot cause I don't wear leggings all the time. <laughs> I mean, really only on Tuesday nights when I'm trying to make a statement and get free drinks for the night. Um, so I don't really feel that bad that I'm not in on the leggings, um, uh, maybe nomenclature, but they actually even have what they call um, a sharky con. Um, so, I mean, they do a lot to really integrate with their fans. Um, and all of that is really time intensive. But I think it's really that outside of the box 
thinking um, that really helps you not only stand above everyone else, but, you know, really leggings aren't a unique product. I mean, I can go on Amazon. I can go, if I really want some outrageous ones, I can also go to probably American Apparel and get some really... (laughs) Really, ones. probably high-waisted ones. <laughs> very high-waisted. Uh, um, and also see some very humorous pictures as yeah. I navigate their site. But, uh, you know, so they don't really necessarily sell the most unique products, but what where they make up for it is really their community involvement and kind of putting boots on the ground. Um, and, and I think that that is really applicable for a lot of different businesses to, you know, really try to think about how do we engage with people post conversion? I mean, I, I know a ton of companies are struggling with this all the time and, and how best to do it. Rob has a very funny face, which I'm guessing he's on the site right I, now. I am on the sharkycon.com <laughs> site and it's a little disturbing. So this is, I don't know if it's safe for work. I think the debatable, the, debatable. yeah, the legging, it depends on how loose your work environment is. The, um, anyways, but, you know, from an e-commerce standpoint, um, I think this is really applicable for a lot of different companies to kind of engage that passion in people uh, to want to come back and really talk about your brand. I think what, what Black Milk has done well is, in particular, with the female demographic, they talk, they're very social with one another. You know, guys kind of make grunting noises when we get together, fist pump and use lots of bros and things of that nature. But, you know, from what I can tell of, you know, just dealing with my wife and her friends and things like that, you know, women talk about if they find something cool, they're going to tell everyone. Even if you don't want to hear it, they're going to tell you about (laughs) it. And so I think what Black Milk has really done and done well is kind of identify, especially in the female demographic, getting people that are super passionate about their products and even their meetups and things like that, they actually don't have to do anything with leggings. I mean, it can just be put on by black milk. Um, But keying into that demographic and getting those people to essentially be brand ambassadors, you know, has huge benefits, especially on the long-term tale of things with your customers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a twist on a lot of things that people have been doing for a long time, even as simple as, you know, Apple giving you a sticker when you buy a laptop with them. And then oh, yeah. now everyone sticks it on their car and, right. and has to have that logo everywhere. A flare. Right, <laughs> exactly. From office it's, space. Like, <laughs> it's become such a brand that it's like um, people want to be associated with it. Right. Um, and, and it's interesting to see that these brand advocates in the conference, I'm not really sure exactly what goes on at this thing. The site was a little disturbing, uh, but you know, it's, it's interesting to see a clothing company take it to that level. Right. I think, you know, obviously this, I don't think this kind of thing would work with men necessarily, but maybe there, a, a different aspect. Right. So, not with clothing. Right. With something else. I think, So you know, like one of the companies I work for deals with sports merchandise and I think a very apt kind of crossover type um, effort could be, you know, hosting meetups and in large cities that we put on, whether it's watching uh, a sporting event or draft parties or whatever it might be um, to kind of engage them in a different area. Um, I think that, again, like, De- depending on the market, there's a lot of crossover that can happen, even with grunting men. You know, I think you can still get them to be fanatical um, kind of fans and brand ambassadors for them and just getting creative on 
on how to do it, but you also have to be willing to put in the work. I mean, right. that those type of events aren't don't just put themselves on. I mean, you have to put the time, the effort. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, I'm not too familiar with this brand, but Lululemon does a similar mm-hmm. thing in sort of creating brand ambassadors by having, um, you know, they sell yoga clothing. So right. they have you know, basically a yoga studio inside their stores mm-hmm. and they get people who like are obsessed with the brand and like promote it for them while also selling the products that you are now going to use in the store. Genius. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're, we're getting them on all fronts, all right. fronts. Right. Um, but I, I think a lot of companies could take the lead there. Uh, and again, like you got to put in the work to, to do it, but you know, I think a lot of marketers just in general and companies look at just sales and customers as numbers, forecasts, and targets. You know, like we are trying to improve our conversion rates. We are trying to make usability greater. But we don't really look at, you know, how can we increase the passion of the sale or how satisfied people are or how they're going to be telling others about it or how they can be brand ambassadors. You know, sometimes we do that, but that's like what that's what social media does or yeah. that's what another department does. Um, but I think as as marketers we can really help that effort. And the good thing about some of these efforts is I feel like there's like a compounding effect. Absolutely. You know, like once you've sold, you know, it's always easier to to have someone return and make a purchase you know, then potentially getting someone else like the cost typically is a lot lower. So the efforts that you can make in these areas can sometimes have a compounding effort on or a compounding effect on the returns that we're getting. So yeah, there might be challenges to measuring. We'll get to that later on as (laughs) as our last topic. But, you know, I I thought it was a good article. Definitely check it out. Damn, I wish I would have thought I think it's damn. I wish.com. I don't think that's actually the Google it, you'll find it. I think it's newsletter number 963, I believe. 936. 936. I'm dyslexic, but only on half the word. Um, <laughs> and check that article out. I think there could be a lot of takeaways that uh, a lot of companies uh, could implement and see some uh, some interesting returns on. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about tonight were those Bing It On commercials, the Bing It On Challenge commercials. How annoying is that guy? I just got to say that from the get-go. Yeah. Your voice gets how, to me. How long have those commercials been running? I don't even, do you know? Mm, a few months, I feel like, yeah, at least. Yeah, at least a few months. Yeah. I, I feel like at least recently, though, they're everywhere and I can't <laughs> get away from them. So Haters gonna hate. <laughs> I finally decided, you know, just watching the commercial itself, you can... Mm-hmm. Uh, you sort of understand what they're trying to do, right? So right. judging by the way that they phrase it, the web's top phrases, more people choose Bing over Google, mm-hmm. you know that there's something up with that. Right. So I looked into it. Here's exactly what they mean when they say that. They ran a study through some group, and it was with Slipping one... Bing Insights group? <laughs> no, I think it was some third party, actually. Okay. They ran it with 1,000 people, and of the web's top searches, mm-hmm. which there is some interesting way they came up with it, but basically looking at top keywords over the past X, whatever from Google trends or, okay. you know, Bing trends, whatever the Definitely equivalent Google is. Trends, but yes. <laughs> um, 57.4% of the participants on those uh, top keywords chose Bing more often. Mm-hmm. 30.2% chose Google more often and 12.4% of those uh, resulted in a draw. 
So those are the actual results uh-huh. of the sort of survey participation thing okay. that they that they ran. But I want to talk about some of the gotchas in there, the caveats, which which I will. think make all the difference in the world. Of course. The first one being, okay, so the test does not include things like ads or content in other parts of the page. So it's just the search listings, I, okay. I'm guessing the top 10. Sure. Um, it doesn't include things like Bing snapshots. Um, social search includes from Google and Bing. Hmm. Um, Google's knowledge graph. <laughs> uh, you know, like a lot of the pricing things that Google includes for right. certain types of searches. So all yeah, those differentiating factors, right? All those differentiating <laughs> factors, those, the things that really make a difference, right. don't show up in these searches. So uh-huh. what you're essentially left with is who includes some of that stuff by default. Right. Who includes the most pictures? Yeah, that's is, what I was is, say. is what I think it mostly comes down. Well, to. yeah, when I watch the when I watch the the uh, commercials each and every time like well they're just picking that because there's images at the top of bing has nothing to do with the results so yeah it's interesting to hear some of the caveats in that study yeah so i so i went to the bing and on challenge page and some of the top searches were people's names you know whatever's going on in the news so obviously you do searches for those things and just pictures flood the page for the bing Bing. for the bing one for google though there aren't any pictures because (laughs) Google includes all the pictures in the content parts that Bing cuts out Uh before they show it. The uh, knowledge graph area. Right. All that stuff that makes Google way better, they get rid of that. So that's the big problem I have with it. The Mm -hmm. other problem, too, is most people, I mean, yes, those are the most common searches, but most people don't search for those things on a daily basis. So Mm -hmm. what I actually did was I went in and I ran 10 search queries for keywords I search all the time. You know, I I use Google every day. So an example would be like coding help for something. So a very specific question about PHP. Like I I put that into the Bing challenge and I chose, I think, Google for that one. Um, I did some searches for some products um, and see which one I picked. And then um, just some various search queries that you would do on a daily basis. I don't typically search for, you know, like Richard Branson as a search, which is what, you know, like they're trying to get you to search for. So out or if of, you did, you would look at the knowledge graph the information <laughs> right, that right. Google prevent, pre, pre, presents you so you don't have to go into the Wikipedia article or wherever it might be. Yeah, exactly. So of the 10 searches I did, I chose Google eight times and Bing twice. Boom. And I think it's because they tricked me on purpose for those two. That's the only reason why they got I me. I think you get a free Xbox now. <laughs> Isn't that what I heard on that commercial? I I think that's that's one variation of the commercial they are running. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I want my free Xbox. Actually, I have one right now. I'm trying to give away. If anyone wants an Xbox, hit us up. They're so loud. Uh, anyway, we're getting a little bit <laughs> off topic. But, oh, Anyways, brother. I don't know if you had anything to... Uh, if you had any opinion on the Bing and on Challenge. I personally do not use Bing for anything. Mm-hmm. Or Yahoo, if that's even really a thing anymore. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think they just now are one entity the well, org is taking over right exactly i don't even know if you can go to yahoo.com and do a search i guess is my point but well it's it's when you get to yahoo it's like they don't want you to search they have so yeah. much crap going on on the yeah. page it's like screaming at you they've resigned to the fact that google is better <laughs> bing is still microsoft's still in denial yeah i yeah i mean what i well i guess the problem that i have with those commercials is they don't really talk about why they're any better it's just you should use it because these people do. So it's like the social pressure that they're trying to instill in you. Well, these people liked it. You should. But I don't really go into 
this is something new that Bing has that Google doesn't or, you know, any sort of benefits that go beyond just the social aspects of these people enjoyed it. You should try it. So yeah. That's, it, well, I guess, where I... And, you know, this it. is the last sort of point I'm going to have on this is that I think it's uh, it's a flawed, I guess, sort of survey or study to begin with mm-hmm. and that the way you would find out if someone finds something more useful or helpful or something like that would be to actually test it and look at the data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to compare it to well, what we do. more pure experience, not, well, truncate right. the page very right. beneficial Well, and then us. ask them a question. You wouldn't mm-hmm. do that. So mm-hmm. if you're trying to create the best landing page, the, the one that's easiest to use, you wouldn't just show them the to the landing page and say, which one do you <laughs> think one would you be like? easiest? Mm-hmm. You'd actually test it to find out. Right. Uh, which, you know, Bing obviously didn't do in this case because they probably find out that Google is better. <laughs> so, And then more tissues would be used in the Bing office just to wipe the tears away. <laughs> All right. So let's talk. Man, we always Bing hating. <laughs> yeah. We always have to talk about mobile search in some respect and social networking. And so tonight I think we're going to go with mobile search trends. I think, what was it, in 2012? 2012 all the way through, I think we have data to 16, which would obviously be forecasted. But uh, yeah, it starts at 2012. So we took a look at a infographic that Get Elastic posted about some of their trends and statistics that they're seeing in the U.S. mobile commerce sales. Now, I'm sure all of you have probably seen 1,000 infographics on mobile and our websites. Um, So I'm not going to rehash everything on this study. There were a couple things that I was a little bit surprised about. And we'll kind of talk about those for a little bit. And hopefully it's not, again, rehashing the same information that we kind of always see. But, you know, one thing that was a bit actually smaller than I expected is they project by 2016 one out of four dollars is going to come from an, a mobile device and I and I guess looking at some of the growth trends that I've seen in this area I, I guess I expected it to be a little bit higher I mean I guess one could argue people aren't necessarily willing to purchase uh as often on mobile devices or there's the threat of or they're scared of security or the convenience you know typing out with my big thumbs on my phone or tablet's not necessarily easy um so it's much easier to do on maybe a laptop or desktop anyways i expected that number to be a bit higher but that's still a sizable margin so when when we're talking billions of dollars on the e-commerce side of things we're looking at in total U.S. e-commerce retail sales of $360 billion and nearly $85 billion of will be on mobile devices. So definitely a sizable enough segment yeah. to pay attention to. Um, but again, I guess I, I would not doubt that that number gets revised a little bit higher up. Um, but more importantly, I think and we've kind of talked about this in the past, is they also trend based on devices. So they break it out by tablets, smartphones, and other mobile devices. With those two, I don't know what other mobile devices are. Maybe it's like those geriatric uh, cell phones with the big buttons that can't access the web. But um, I don't know what other mobile devices would be. Anyways, by 2016, tablets just are far outpacing um, smartphones. And, and I think there was a, a couple takeaways that we had there. And, you know, I think we can look at what's necessarily driving that. And I think 
just in my personal experience, I know a lot of people, when it comes time to getting a piece of technology, a lot of people are opting for getting a tablet instead of like a desktop computer, um, which is a little striking to me because, you know, I have a tablet, I have a Nexus 7, and I, I feel like it's a very nice blog reader and like a, I have some spare time, I'm sitting on the couch or I'm half watching the show and I might do something else, but it's definitely not powerful enough to kind of replace my desktop computer for my purposes. But I think I'm a very specialized segment. And I think a lot of us as maybe marketers are, because we do some pretty complex things on a computing basis that the general population doesn't do once they leave work. You know, they don't necessarily need a desktop computer with where cell phones are, especially with how big some of them are getting. I think it's like the Note 2 is... It's like five inch screen now or a little bit higher than that. I mean, that's, that's a big phone, sir. Um, <clears throat> so it's interesting to see how much tablets are going to be outpacing mobile devices, which is, I would actually say is confirmed with kind of what I've been seeing just personally. But I think that also means that we need to potentially look at our mobile experiences a little bit better. I mean, I know just in my experience with the companies that I consult with, they lump tablets and mobile together so we have our mobile and that's in air quotes we have our mobile experience but with where tablets are versus smartphones i mean there are some differences there and we can do some different things with our website whether that's you know higher quality images on our tablet experience um a little bit more feature rich because they can actually render and load pages a little bit faster because there's more computing power there more memory in the devices so You know, I think that as that tablet segment grows, and really I would argue that we're already there, that we need to look at our mobile experiences not just as, well, if someone's looking at my uh, site on an iPhone versus an iPad, we'll essentially serve them up the same thing or make some small changes. I think that there's going to be enough growth in that area over the next couple of years to merit that we're going to have to go down the responsive web design uh, and web coding path to provide a rich experience that's going to be radically different depending on the device. Yeah, I think you have a good point in terms of, you know, what accounts for the drastic growth over the next few years of tablets versus mobile. I mean, mobile continues to grow. I mean, just looking at the numbers from 2012... Um, to the predictions in 2016. I mean, mobile does more than double, but tablets, I mean, when I say mobile, I mean smartphones. Mm-hmm. Tablets, though, go from 13.8 to 61 billion mm-hmm. over that same span. So, Whereas mobile goes from 9.8 to 24. Right. So the change is much more radical on the tablet side of things. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I think what you just pointed out is is probably the main driver of that. I think that you know, I know people personally right now who, as their laptop has sort of um, gotten old and no longer function, as all those Windows laptops do, <laughs> after like, after three years, mm-hmm. I don't know why, um, you know, instead of going and getting another laptop, they just get an iPad mm-hmm. or whatever it is or whatever the equivalent um, tablet is. And for them, for most people, that's good enough because, you know, usually at work, they still have a, a laptop or a desktop mm-hmm. that if they need a computer like that, they can... Or they'll just do it at work. Right. Well, exactly. (laughs) Right. Um, Because a tablet's good enough. And, you know, like most of the tablets, 
you know, the Nexus is a little bit smaller, but mm-hmm. you know, the iPad size and, and, and bigger, you can pretty much view all websites in normal mode. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you can do everything. Without any significant cropping or anything. Right. Like and mm-hmm. it, and it's a little bit of a pain sometimes, you know, having to zoom in to click on certain fields and fill things out. But, mm-hmm. but the most part things work the way that you would expect. Now, you know, I've had an iPad, I think the first gen since whenever the first gen came out. And it's been There's relegated. <laughs> well, actually, I bought it right before the second oh, gen came no. out, and I didn't know. Nice. I was pissed. But I gotcha. um, it's been relegated I don't want these to are on sale. Oh, <laughs> right. you got me good. <laughs> it's been relegated to my media music player controller mm-hmm. since basically since I've gotten it. it. It's too slow for me to do anything on. I can't handle it. I have to do everything on my laptop. But, you know, thinking back in time, I remember when I felt the same way about my laptop. I had to mm-hmm. do everything on my desktop. I couldn't stand yeah. using my laptop for anything. So slow. Yeah, exactly. So I think that in that in these next few years, tablets will get better and better. And they may already be at that point. I mean, I don't really look at tablets much right now, but I think yeah, the I speed really has a, caught up. I don't, yeah, I don't really notice a lag per se on my nexus 7 i mean things are pretty i mean it all right. it's all dependent on your connection as with anything on mobile devices uh but i definitely think i you know at home and in most places i don't really notice that but kind of along those lines is you know, another takeaway that i took from this study is you know as more and more people access our site from these mobile devices and in my experience these sessions and visits can be somewhat fragile you know, depending on what connection people are using with these devices, especially on the cellular side of things, you know, think people can pop in and out, lose signal for a while, or phones crashing, browser crashing, things like that. And and one thing I haven't seen very well thought out from a testing standpoint is how when people are interacting with us from these devices, do we kind of collect a point of contact to follow up with them you know even in our and analytics that i see from some of the bigger companies that i work with some of these sessions uh seem to be terminating a little bit earlier than maybe people intend them to or um you know when i see return visits in the proximity to where their session dropped out it seems that there are um, some issues going on with some of these access to these devices. So I think from a company standpoint of an interesting test to run with some of these tablets and mobile devices would be, you know, whether people are interacting with a form or adding something to their cart um, or whatever our desired actions would be is one looking at kind of how much information we're collecting because, you know, Trying to type a lot of things out on a mobile device or a tablet can be terrible. And maybe we can kind of pare that down or look for other information that might be just as valuable. Or, you know, in the e-commerce side of things, maybe we try to collect an email address a little bit earlier on to send them their cart details. Now, there's a lot of things that you'd want to measure there to make sure that you're not driving conversions off to another time period where people might just convert there. But all those things aside, it would be an interesting test to try to kind of connect with these visitors earlier on in the process to understand if uh, there's some benefits in uh, trying to connect with them in case their sessions kind of end more abruptly than they thought. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I use Apple products so nothing crashes on me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one drink in, already the lives are flowing. <laughs> no, honestly, I can't remember the last time. I will say this. Yeah, it I just do, takes you back to the home screen. Though. I, I don't do, really tell you if it crashes. No, no I, I honestly haven't seen a crash <laughs> on my iPhone 5. Um, I will say this, though. When I do, you know, when I'm in a place with no reception, mm-hmm. I'm, like, honestly, like, shocked. <laughs> like, what century am I in? Where am I? Right. I have no reception right now. I can't, you know, load up this web page that I'm trying to compare prices in this store. Right. So that is an interesting angle, you know, you talk about. And I don't know if if a lot of that will fix itself in terms of, um, you know, mobile devices getting better, mm-hmm. um, more stable, um, connections being more stable again, all that stuff sort of working itself out. Because even in the last two, three years, I mean, we've made such huge leaps and bounds mm-hmm. from an iPad that, you know, like I got a couple years ago that I can't use for anything anymore. Basically to... use it for a big coaster. <laughs> exactly. It's not even charged anymore. It just sits on the counter. I don't even use it. To, you know, devices that work Personal absolutely problem. fine and are so... <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, let's. But yeah, right. yeah, I mean, I think you do have a good point. Yeah, maybe technology will eventually kind of work itself out. Uh, but um, yeah, especially with tablets, because you know the control that you know the developers and the companies have over them. You know, it's not like a Windows machine where you can plug in any piece of hardware mm-hmm. and hope and pray that everything works out. Right. Um, but kind of along those lines, you know, the last point that we wanted to talk about, which was actually shocking to me. Was they also measured the consumer's time spent on shopping in subcategory break break broken down into subcategories. So out of their mobile devices, how do they spend their time shopping? And the biggest uh, segment out of these categories by a pretty sizable margin was retailer apps, which actually really struck me as shocking because I actually don't use retailer apps ever really and what's even more interesting about this is they broke out the one reason why i think that that could have been very high was potentially companies that specialize in doing deals so i could see people using a groupon app a lot every day to look for deals but actually in the study they branched that out separately so people spending time on retailers app that does not include daily deals or price comparison. Those are actually separate categories that are actually less than retailer apps. So, you know, I think they're with some of this data, if it holds true over the next couple of years, that, you know, I know a lot of companies are, you know, a lot of medium-sized companies especially are kind of in this area, do we want to tackle an app? or not because that is a different area of development it sometimes takes a very specialized team to look at Um, and you also have to kind of look at usability and paths and how a user interacts with things a lot differently than a web page when you're starting to design an app so it can be kind of a daunting task but this data seems to point to you know if you can get people engaging with an app i think one you have to do a good job of you know, using efficiency in that app, but also providing relevant content to where people just don't use your app for one-time use. But the the data seems to point that there is some value there. Now, I think you need to kind of weigh, you know, what are you trying to offer through this app and is it going to be valuable and highly used? Because 
is it going to be value, valuable for your company to go into the development of an app for 99% of people just to use it once, get frustrated and leave, or there's just not a lot of return value. So people just end up uninstalling it and, you know, maybe costing some brand uh, perception there that, you know, I don't use them and their app was crap and I had to uninstall it because it was filling up my phone and I wanted to install the latest Angry Birds and, <laughs> you know, I had to uninstall this app. So I think there's a lot of things to weigh, but 27% of consumer time spent shopping through retailers app, which was by far the biggest category, was a bit shocking to me and I think kind of made me realize that maybe there is more value than I kind of initially gave to potentially going down an app route. Um, so I don't know. What are you, Did you have any thoughts on that? You lines? know, I'm curious to see what kind of retailer mm-hmm. uh, apps we're sort of talking about here. If it's a lot of those... Uh, sort of discount or fashionable trend sites where it's a lot of... Uh, kind of like fab.com yeah, or something like that. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, or if it's the likes of like a Home Depot app. Right. Or, or Amazon. Amazon, or which like another shout-out to Amazon. I love everything you do. <laughs> I'm not getting paid for this shout-out, but I should be. Um, no, I think you had some good points there. I, you know, we're running out a little bit of time here, so I wanted to quickly talk about this study that Marketing Sherpa had done. Mm-hmm. Um you can hit them up at sherpablog.marketingsherpa.com. The, the title of it was basically, um, the question that they had posed was, what were your organization's most frustrating challenges with marketing analytics in 2012? And I think some of the top answers they got were insightful in terms of, and you know, this is what the blog post sort of points to, is that you know, we finally turned the corner um, from the biggest problem being getting data. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just beyond visitor numbers and things like that. Like we have so much data now. It's, how many tapes users do I have? Right. It's it's unbelievable how much data we have on everything from various sources all over the place, which all contradict each other. I mean, there's so much data out there. The biggest problem now has become what do I do with all of it, and mm-hmm. how much of it do I really need? Right. Um. And how much? What do I need how to pay attention to? Yeah. How, mm-hmm. What? How can I make sense of all this? Um how much can I rely on this data? You know, like those kinds of questions are now the biggest problems people have. It's not getting the data. Um, So 42% of the people responded saying acting on the data to improve marketing performance was the biggest challenge they had. So yeah, I have all this data. Um, How am I supposed to act on it? What am I supposed to do? (laughs) I'm just staring at Uh, numbers, a lot of them. (laughs) Can I even act on it? Mm -hmm. Um, The 41% said, Combining data from multiple sources to draw correlations and make predictions was the biggest challenge they had. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I know that's something that I have had some struggles with before in the past. And and a lot of it stems from, you know, a lot of people kind of try to get fancy with their nomenclature. So what one calls visit is a little bit different or they might have different names some don't carry some metrics whereas others do they also might calculate them a little bit differently or some allow you to calculate or define them your own and depending on who set them up it might be different and i and i think a lot of people don't go through the necessary steps of validating their data through different steps so you know they complain about not knowing how to kind of interpret data from all these different sources, but they haven't even really gone to the first step of, is this even trustworthy? So, you know, before this even enters the mix, should I even trust this data to begin with? Or should I maybe look to do a similar function in a tool that I've already set up and trust 
to kind of get somewhat uh, or somewhere the same amount of data or, you know, a comparable amount through something that I've already trusted, validated and things like that. Yeah, I mean, those are all huge issues. Uh, Another problem a lot of people are having 26% hiring data savvy marketing talent and or training current staff to Mm -hmm. uh, wade through all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so me and Rob are based in the U.S., and to be honest, I think that that's something that the U.S. is going to struggle with for a while. I mean, given my collegiate experience and being pretty well-traveled here in the States, there is not a high push for math and science in a lot of areas, and I think that there is going to be a, a kind of a shortage, especially in our industry, for companies that really need people that understand math to a pretty deep level. You know, we took, we, we were both actually, you were a marketing major? Yeah. Yeah. So I was as well. And we, we took some statistics classes and I've taken some continuing kind of uh, learning outside of that because it's an area I like. But I mean, with the amount of data uh, that we are currently kind of inundated with on a daily basis, it takes a pretty deep understanding of math. Uh, to not get yourself in trouble. It's not just interpreting the data, but from a you know, marketing analyst kind of standpoint, it's very easy to draw some bad conclusions from data because you, know, you can craft a story that you want before getting into the data and find some data that kind of validates your preconceived notions, or you can just splice the hell out of your data yeah. and kind of look at such small segments that you make radical changes for that, you know, on aggregate are terrible for your website because, number one, you're just starting out at looking and trying to cater to such a small amount of people that it's not significant. Um, And you can cause some significant problems kind of later down the road. So I think, one, as a country, we're going to kind of probably have to change or go outside of to kind of fill that void. But I also think in the marketplace, I think that there's going to be some changes in companies that um, kind of filled that big data void, you know, of helping disseminate that information, boiling it down, um, and kind of helping companies make actionable data. Cause I think that's what a lot of people suffer from is the paralysis of just too much information. Um, and you know, how do I kind of wade through the, uh, the weeds, but you know, and there's also not very good training out there, I feel like, as well. I think that's like a big area that's still kind of a gray spot. I know Marketing Motive offers some pretty good courses, and there's some companies here and there that, you know, will kind of do some training. But, you know, I think education that's specific to our industry is also something that that is a bit lacking. So if anyone has any recommendations for education, you know, feel free to drop us a comment. Um, we'll definitely check it out. And uh, if it, if we, you know, kind of passes a sniff test, we'll probably pass it along. But I think education for people and how to kind of read the information that we have uh, is a big problem. But also I would challenge people, kind of bite the bullet and hire a consultant. I mean, there are some people out there that this is specifically what they do. And to me, it's money well spent to make sure your stuff is set up correctly, you can trust it, but also maybe having them train you on what to look for. Um, You know, there are 
quite a few people out there that are are quite good at what they do on the analytics side of things. Yeah, I know a couple good guys, the Bearded Marketers, <laughs> 904-270-9603. Well, you know, the point I'm, what I was trying to make, though, is, you know, using data poorly has some really bad consequences. You know, going on intuition, you can make some really bad guesses. But the problem with bad data is you can be very confident in the decisions that you make because you feel like they're merited with data. And so what can happen that I've seen in companies is instead of intuition, which might be quickly resolved by real data or an incident happening, if you kind of make assumptions based on data, they can perpetuate themselves for a very long time because you feel like this is correct because I have data that proves this, right. whether it's right or wrong. In many cases, it's wrong. But there is certain areas that I feel like in our businesses that doing things right, design is one of them, but analytics is also another one of them where it behooves people once they get to a certain size and they can afford it to have a, a professional really look at them and, and essentially set us up for correct success and making sure that we're not shooting ourselves in the foot by making some really bad um, observations with how our business is performing. So that's kind of Corey's tidbit and uh, soapbox for the day. But yeah. we've kind of talked quite a bit. I know it went a little bit long tonight, but um, definitely hit us up on the website or on the Twitter as well, the bearded MKTRS is our handle. Thank you a lot for the character limitations, Twitter. <laughs> um, but uh, we'd also appreciate a rating or a like on Facebook. Read us on iTunes. Drop us some comments. Um, but we're also continually crafting our content that we're going to be providing in the podcast. I mean, between Rob and I, I mean, we're almost close to two decades in this industry between affiliate marketing, email, website optimization. I mean, a ton of different areas lead gen. And let us know what you would like us to talk about. I mean, we have a, a very eclectic mix between the both of us. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have a discussion up on uh, our LinkedIn group. So okay. look for yeah, us yeah. on there. So right hit now. that up. Uh, give us some recommendations on what you what are you struggling with and what would you like us to talk about. Uh, also, if you have any funny stories or recommendations, you can drop us a voicemail, 904-270-9603. Rob listens to all of them, and uh, he writes them down and mails me a postcard of each and every voicemail uh, personally. So, as always, it was great spending time with you guys, and until next week, this is the Bearded Marketers. Have a safe day.